Good morning. Open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. A few months ago, Anchored had a parent night during which all the leaders came up and told the room why they were involved in youth ministry. When it was my turn, I said something along the lines of wanting to give you all the gospel. Since I have another opportunity to speak before you, I would like to add something to that statement. I not only want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, but I want you to be useful because of it. To be fruitful, productive, and passionate about your faith. I want to exhort you, as James 1.22 does, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That you would be Christians who bear fruit, Christians who are useful. The title of my message this morning is How to Be a Useful Christian. Today we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Abba Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word this morning, that you would help me to be clear and useful, that these young men and women would be edified and strengthened in their faith. Amen. What does it mean to be a useful Christian? What does that look like? During Paul's imprisonment in Rome, a runaway slave who had stolen and cheated his master came to saving faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. The slave was regenerated and his life was transformed from one of uselessness to one of usefulness. Paul sent him back to his master with a personal letter that is now in your Bibles as the epistle to Philemon. Onesimus was the slave's name and he gives us the perfect illustration of what a useful Christian looks like. His name was a common name for slaves during this time, and it literally means useful. Before Christ, laziness, theft, and rebellion marked his life. And now, as he is born again and experiences a new life in Christ, through the power of God, his life is marked by productivity, service, and loyalty. Onesimus was transferred from a slave to sin to a slave of Christ. Even the name Christian includes the idea of useful service. In the first century Greek culture, they would call their slaves by their master's name. They would do that by attaching the suffix in to their name. For example, Caesar's slaves were called Caesareans. That's what they meant when they called someone a Christian. They weren't just saying that they're little Christs, which it could certainly mean that, but they were calling them a Christ slave, someone who belonged to Christ. 
So when I say I want you to be a useful Christian, what I'm saying is I want you to be a useful slave of Christ. Peter wanted these believers to be useful Christians. His desire was for them to grow up in their sanctification. He took personal responsibility in shepherding them. This is Peter's second letter to these churches. The book is kind of a Peter's farewell um, address. He reminds them of the greatness of God, the precious gift of their faith and salvation in Christ, and the resulting holiness that it brings. He encourages them to strive for godliness and to continue to grow in both knowledge and Christian virtue. And then he warns them about false teachers and the coming judgment of God upon the world, exhorting them to continue in the things taught to them while they're enduring suffering until the Lord returns. Take a look at verse 12 in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Here, Peter wants to give them a review to refresh their minds in the truth of the gospel. He wants to stir them up by way of reminder, to motivate them, to drive them to something by remembering. He does this because he knows that his death is approaching. He says to them that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. He knows he's about to die. And he writes to these churches as if to say, I will remind you of these things even if it's the last thing I do. In our passage this morning, I want to show you what Peter is so earnestly reminding these churches about. I will approach the text in the same mindset that Peter wrote, wanting to remind you of these truths. So consider this sermon kind of a review sermon. Um, Many people today have a disdain for the pulpit because they believe that they already know everything the preacher has to say. They know enough of the Bible that they certainly don't need someone to teach them. They, they stop listening in the middle of a sermon, and when asked about their thoughts after the service, they respond complacently with, well, that was a good reminder. Or they just quit going to church altogether and claim to study the Bible for themselves. That's not biblical. Biblical Christianity involves a continual reminder of the truths of God. We need repetition. We need review. Otherwise, we would be prone to forget if we don't remember, we will become useless. In Second Peter 1 through 3, I'm going to show you three things to remember that will keep you from becoming useless and help you to grow in your sanctification. Number one, remember the divine cause of your faith. Take a look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the world the corruption of the world by lust. Peter wants to remind these churches of the source of their faith. He points them directly back to God and makes this point loud and clear. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation does not come from man. You are not born into it. You cannot earn it of your own merits. It is not yours simply because other people have a good opinion of you. Salvation has no other source than from God. Peter uses four points to drill this into your minds. The divine power, the divine gift, 
the divine promises, and the divine nature. Your faith was provided and sustained by Christ's divine power. Verse 3 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This refers to Christ's divine power. This is theos dynamis in the Greek, or God power. One of my favorite Puritan authors, William Grinnell, once said, We dishonor God whenever we forget the predeterminer all when we're discussing God's power. When we say God is powerful, what we really mean to say is, God is all-powerful. When He is almighty. There is not one atom out of His control. No creature can do anything without Christ's power. The sun is energized by Christ. The plants photosynthesized by His will. And the animals breathe by His permission. Every ounce of blood in your veins and every breath in your lungs is willed by God the Son. It is through His sovereign choice that we live and breathe and have our being. It is God's power. If, if God's power is the source of all knowledge, of all energy in nature, how much more is His power the source of your faith? God's almighty power is the battery behind your faith. His strength is the spark that ignites your faith and the fuel that keeps it going. Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You are not a Christian because of your own strength. You are a Christian because of Christ's divine power, which was granted to you. The Christian can therefore be useful because his faith from start to finish is rooted in God's power. Notice that this almighty God power that grants you your faith, this shows us the second thing Peter reminds us about the source of our faith, that it is a divine gift. Peter says this divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Christians have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. The whole Christian life and all that comes with it is a gift from an almighty God. Being born again and having your eyes opened is a gift from God. Your freedom and victory over sin is a gift from God. Your eternal life purchased for you by, the cro- by Christ on the cross is a gift. Your sanctification and filling of God's Holy Spirit to help you live righteously is a gift. The source of all these gifts doesn't come from the receiver, but from the giver. This eternal life you have been given is not something you need to earn. It is especially isn't something you deserve. It is the gift of God. Peter wants to remind us that you have been given everything you need to be a productive, useful Christian. He starts by reminding us that our faith is rooted in God's power and that salvation is a gift from God to us. Then he goes on to show the the promises of God that we have through Christ Jesus. Peter's third point is the divine promises are obtained and fulfilled by Christ. Look at verse 4. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Notice the for by these. This refers to Christ's power, glory, and excellence. Don't miss what Peter is saying here. Christians are those who have come to salvation, not only through the power of God, but because they have seen the glory of Christ. Christ has now become lovely to them. It is impossible to be a Christian and have an indifference toward Christ. 
On the contrary, the Christian sees Christ as their chief joy. When you were dead in sin, Christ wasn't glorious. He wasn't lovely. No. When you were dead in sin, He maybe was a good person to you, but glorious, lovely? No, He was despised and rejected by you. But God, being rich in mercy, by His divine power, made you alive and caused you to seek Christ as glorious and excellent. Now, His promises aren't just Sunday school lessons to you. They are precious and even magnificent. Christ calls you by His own beauty and His own glory. He invites you to come and adore Him. And as a sheep who hears the shepherd's voice, you run after Him. That was caused by God. God caused you to see Christ as glorious. The word excellence here is an interesting Greek word. Suppose you ever end up taking a philosophy or ethics class. Um, In that case, you would find that it's a prevalent word um, used among Greek philosophers. The word translates as virtue. In Peter's day, virtue was understood to mean the ideal citizen, the good guy. The supreme example of what someone ought to strive to become. Peter ascribes this word to Christ. Jesus is the ideal citizen. He is the supreme example. Jesus encapsulates virtue. It is by Christ's glory and His excellence that He has granted us His promises. What are these promises? They are the promises of God in the Scripture to His people. These are the promises of God fulfilled in Christ to the church. These are the promises of God fulfilled in Christ to Israel. Every single promise of God from Genesis to Revelation has been and will soon be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes in Christ and through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Amen just means yes. Christ, as the fulfillment of God's promises, is so linked in Scripture that Christ calls Himself the yes. He calls Himself the amen in Revelation 3.14. Christ wears the fulfillment of all God's promises as a name. And the book of 2 Peter emphasizes these promises. As the book progresses, Peter focuses on one promise in which all the other promises climax. It is the promise of Christ's coming. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Peter points us to the promise of His coming. He doesn't want you to forget it. These mockers here reject the promise that Christ will one day return. When Christ returns to set up His kingdom, then all the promises of God will come to pass. This leads us to the final point Peter drives home, the fulfillment of a promise that deals with you. Because of all the glorious things that God has done for the Christian by His power, through all the gifts, through all the promises, Peter shows us the reason for all these glorious things that God has done for us. A reason that, as a believer, should give you hope, comfort, security, and joy. Number four, Christ makes us participate in the divine nature. We come to partake in the divine nature through these magnificent and precious promises. There has been a lot of ink spilled on what Peter meant by divine nature. And I would put before you that the most 
straightforward and natural meaning of divine nature is the new life we become when we're born again at regeneration. It is the reason for the promises. It is the restoration of man to be in the image of God. To partake in the divine nature is to be born of God. Something miraculous has happened in your soul. God has made you alive in Christ. You have been born from above. Yet we are not fully experiencing all that divine nature encompasses yet. This ultimately is referring to the future. We are partakers through the promises, and some of those promises haven't been fulfilled yet. We still hope for them. To partake in the divine nature doesn't just mean that you will be saved from the wrath of God and live forever with Him. To partake in the divine nature is the completion of the promise that one day you shall be like Christ. You will be the perfect image bearers of Christ. You shall be made like His glorious body. You, Christian, will have a body made for worshiping God for all eternity. The purpose for your life is that you will one day be a partaker of the divine nature as a pure and holy worshiper of the triune God. When Christ comes to reign, you will participate. When Christ comes to judge, you will partake. When Christ comes to set up His kingdom, you shall be there. When Christ returns and we see Him face to face, we shall be changed. We shall be transformed like His glorious body. This mortality shall put on immortality. We shall be forever partakers in the divine nature. And here is the reason why God has done all this for you and made you partake in the divine nature. So that He will have a peculiar people for Himself who will worship Him in the splendor of holiness for all eternity. A people who would be useful for His service. God is the source of your faith so that all the glory from your usefulness as a Christian would go to Him. As the Christian sees the divine source of their faith and increases their love for God and motivates them to serve Him in a way that gives Him all the glory. This brings the second thing Peter wants to remind you. Remember to supply fruit to your faith. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. This is the perfect example of how doctrine turns to duty. Similar to Paul's model, where he spends part of his epistle expounding the truths of our faith, then he spends the final part exhorting how to respond to these truths. Peter does the same thing here. First, he elevates our minds to behold what God has done for us. Then he turns around and says, here's what you need to do about it. You are to produce fruit. The Christian isn't changed by the power of God and called by his glory and partakes in his nature just to continue in a life of corruption. You are separated and called to holiness. Peter says that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God has provided for us through His almighty power everything we need to be fruitful Christians. This morning text gives us seven qualities to strive for in our Christian walk. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. 
Notice here the progression of these qualities. They build upon each other and are all interconnected with each other. You can't have one without the other. Let me give you an example. There's no such thing as a morally excellent Christian with no self-control. It is best to understand this fruit as a trait that reveal a truly born-again believer. This list is how a true believer behaves. Peter is saying that all seven of these ingredients make an effective Christian, and each quality is necessary for the others. The first quality listed is moral excellence. Moral excellence is the same word we saw in verse 3 that refers to Christ's excellence, Christ's virtue. Moral excellence here is the word for virtue. As we mentioned, virtue is the moral perfection that all people ought to strive for. For the Christian, Christ was the perfect standard of virtue for the heavenly citizen. He was an example for us. His moral excellence is what we ought to strive toward. Peter is saying, be like Christ, imitate Christ, be a virtuous kingdom citizen by acting like the king. Moral excellence, striving to be conformed in the image of Christ, is like that one block at the bottom of a Jenga tower that if you pull out, everything else collapses. I'm sure you know that what we call someone who says that they are a Christian, yet they don't act like Christ, we call them a hypocrite. If your theology doesn't transform you, then you don't understand it, you missed the whole point. Nothing is more deadly to your sanctification than a total lack of moral excellence. It destroys your walk with the Lord and your witness as a Christian, and it may show that you've never truly had faith to begin with. The second quality listed as knowledge. The more of your understanding of Christ grows, your moral excellence increases. And it makes sense, if you're striving to become like somebody, you're going to need to know about them. The third quality listed is self-control. Self-control over the tongue, actions, thoughts, characterize the Christian. The Christian is under the control of the Spirit as they seek to obey Him and keep in step with the Spirit. The fourth quality is perseverance. Perseverance is the Spirit's work of carrying us through life until finally presenting you before Christ washed and purified. It is God's divine power making sure that you make it home. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The fifth quality here is godliness. To the Greek mind, the word godliness, that we translate as godliness, meant that all the rituals associated with worshiping pagan gods. Here, Peter uses it to mean true religion. Godliness is reverence and worship toward God. The useful Christian has such an affection for God, his, his life is characterized by his faith, by his religion. The useful Christian prays, he worships, he, he sings praises to God and gives generously to God. He listens with the heart of submissiveness to God's word. The useful Christian cannot be virtuous without godliness. You must take God seriously. Look at your life and ask if uh, the spiritual disciplines you have show that you take God seriously. Are you godly? Are you a young man or young woman who, who prays? Are you a Christian who seeks to honor the Lord through your life by daily personal devotion? The sixth quality is brotherly kindness. 
This affection for God and worship flows out into brotherly kindness. The quality switched from inward to outward here. From the person you are to the person you are to others. The Greek word for brotherly kindness is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. The useful Christian has, not a, has a love not only for, for God, but also for God's people. Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This love for the church flows from the fountain of the highest virtue on this list. The final virtue that all other virtues find their full expression in is love. Self-sacrificial love. Here we see that these virtues are not only the marks of a useful Christian, but also the heart of the greatest two commandments in the Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Covenant, God has given us His Spirit and has written His law on our hearts. Now all these virtues flow out of a regenerated heart that is walking by the Spirit of God. This list is impossible to fulfill without divine help. Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Note that it's only by the Spirit, by God's help, that we can have these qualities mark our lives. Because we remember the divine source of our faith, we are able to supply fruit to our faith. And if you supply these things in your life, you will be a useful Christian. How then should you approach supplying fruit to your faith? That leads us to the third thing I want you to remember to keep you from becoming useless. Remember to apply diligence to your faith. Apply all diligence to your faith. Look back at verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Diligence is a recurring theme in Second Peter. Peter tells us to be diligent here in verse 5. And then in verse 10, he says, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. Then in verse 15, And I will also be diligent, that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Then to wrap up his point in chapter 3 about the coming of Christ and the new heavens and earth, Peter asks, What kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He then answers his own question with an imperative. Be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless, and blameless. This word diligence holds a sense of urgency, preparation, and thoroughness. It is synonymous with attentiveness, rigor, and hard work. Peter means, I want you to be rigorously intentional about growing in your faith. I want you to be thorough and alert to these things. Applying all diligence means to put in every effort. Put the work in. Don't let your life pass by as if Christ wouldn't come back in the next hour. Be diligent to be found in Him. There is a temptation to be passive in your Christian walk. Growing up in a Bible-preaching church can produce a, a danger, a danger of familiarity. It is easy to become used to the gospel, to used to preaching, to used to the Bible, to the point you forget to listen. You forget why these truths are so important. 
You become like the Ephesians who, even though they had Paul, Timothy, and the apostle of love himself, John, they still lost their first love. Turn to Revelation 2 and take a look down at verse 4. Jesus just commended the Ephesians for persevering through false teachers and holding fast to sound doctrine. This church had great teaching. Yet Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. The word left here means left behind, like forgetting something at home. And Jesus tells them, remember, remember where you were. Don't forget your love for me. You face the danger as a young church-going people to become lazy in learning, sanctification, and loving others because your love for Christ grows cold. You have the privilege of having excellent Bible teachers and preachers. Yet don't allow truths that used to stun you now become old news. Peter says, be diligent. And not just to be diligent, but to apply all diligence. You must use all diligence in growing in Christ's likeness. Apply all diligence in learning more about Christ. Be diligent in maintaining self-control in your thoughts, emotions, words, and actions. Apply all diligence in godliness, holy reverence, prayer, listening to the preached word, and fellowshipping with believers. Apply all diligence in preserving, persevering, and showing brotherly kindness and love. This attitude Peter exhorts these believers to have comes from realizing that the clock is ticking. Christ is coming back at any hour, and these churches must diligently remember these truths and obey them. Peter writes with a sense of urgency, Don't be idle, don't be asleep, don't forget, instead be diligent. He makes the same point in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This expression was taken from the Old Testament phrase, gird up your loins. In the Middle East, they wore long robes that they would tie to their waist to enable them to run, work, or fight. And Peter is telling them to prepare their minds for work. Put your work boots on. Beloved, we would say to the same to you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Put your work boots on. And start hustling in your sanctification. And Peter gives us the reason in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You should be diligent not only because of Christ's return, but also to add fruit to your faith because it makes you useful. This is how you become, a use, become useful as servants of Christ. You, you remember the source of your faith, that it is in God, and you remember to diligently supply fruit to your faith. Then you become a useful servant for your master. Beloved, don't be the man in 2 Peter 1, 9. This is why we want to serve you in youth ministry. We don't want you to become like this person. For in whom these things 
are not present. That one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. This man is a believer. We know that because he has been cleansed from his former sins. But he is a useless Christian. Why? Because he has forgotten. Forgetting is something that is continually warned against in the Old Testament. Let me show you what I mean. In, in Deuteronomy 8.11, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. Moses said in, to Israel, Beware lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Back in Deuteronomy 4.9, Moses says, Only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Israel did exactly what Moses warned them not to do. Judges 3.7 says, Thus the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh. This is precisely what Peter is warning these churches about. Do not forget Yahweh your God. The sin of forgetting makes the difference between a useful Christian and a useless Christian. The man in 2 Peter 1.9 forgot all that God has done for him. He has left behind the truth of God's grace and kindness to him. He forgot that God has forgiven him and purified him from his former sins. This man is so nearsighted he can't see past his own nose. He can't see all the glorious things that God has done for him. He no longer remembers that Christ's divine power has given him everything he needs to be a useful servant. This man is blind because he forgot all that God has done for him. He has forgotten the precious and magnificent promises. He forgets the glory and beauty of Christ. Don't be like this man. Don't forget the source of your faith. Do not forget that Christ has lived the perfect life for you. Don't forget that the enormous cost that was paid by the cross work of Christ to make you a part of the divine nature. Do not forget the promises of God in Christ. Do not forget that Christ is coming back soon. Don't allow yourself to be idle. We remind you that one day you... O Christian, will be reigning with Christ forever and ever. This man forgets the divine cause of his faith. This man forgets to supply fruit to his faith. This man forgets to apply all diligence to his faith. Beloved, do not forget. Be diligent to remember. Let's pray. O Lord... May we say with the psalmist, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless His holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. May we be diligent to keep these things at the forefront of our minds. To the praise and glory of Your Son. Amen.